Hey, it's Tamara. If you're a regular listener of the Trauma Beat podcast, by now you've heard from survivors of school shootings, homicides, a traffic fatality, and sexual violence, and from those who support survivors. Whether they've learned it through the course of their work or lived it through the course of their life, they're all trauma experts, and I know how much it means to each and every one of them that you've listened to what they have to say. I've also heard from many of you, journalists and news consumers alike, who have shared how impactful these conversations have been. Thank you. Today, I bring you my conversation with someone who, while training to deliver the news, became part of the news. This will mark the final episode of this season. I look forward to bringing more important conversations your way in the new year. If you'd like to be part of one of those conversations, send an email to the address in the show notes. And one more thing. If you're looking for a book to snuggle up with over the holidays, might I recommend The Trauma Beat, A Case for Rethinking the Business of Bad News. Busy baking some holiday treats? Try the audiobook. It's narrated by the author, me. All right, here's the last episode of Season 1. You're listening to The Trauma Beat, hosted by me, Tamara Cherry. Check the show notes for anything that might activate your own trauma responses. And as always, like, subscribe, leave a comment, do what you can if you like what you hear. Episode 11, my conversation with mass violence survivor, Brett Holzhauer. So Brett, why don't you just start out by introducing yourself? Yeah, my name is Brett Holzhauer. Um, I'm 28 years old. I now live in South Florida, originally from Southern California. Um, I'm a reporter for CNBC Select. I write about personal finance, investing, anything that has to do with Americans and their money. Um, love the job that I do. Um, grew up playing water polo. I played water polo in high school and college. Um, love being at the beach, love Mexican food. Um, and I have a pretty unique life story to add on top of it. Okay. So the water polo thing we mentioned just offline, that's something you and I have in common. And I love that. I always like, I'm trying to tell my kids, explain to them because one of them, I gave them my, one of my old water polo trophies, explain to them like how tough their mom is. And I don't think they appreciate it yet, but Brett, I know that you appreciate it. (laughs) Yes. Not, not just yet, but they'll get it. Some people are like, Oh, is there a horse involved? Like walk on the bottom of the pool. Yeah, Um, (laughs) It's one of the toughest sports in the world. So it takes a unique individual. Yeah, absolutely. So Brett, you mentioned your unique life story. Uh, How about you just start out by telling us a little bit about your narrative, what you're comfortable sharing in terms of what brought you to me, to reaching out to me on Twitter and having this conversation? Definitely. So to kind of wrap it all together. So I was involved in a a school shooting on June 7th, 2013. It was my last day of junior college, um, ironically enough. And um, to kind of paint the backstory, you know, I come from a, you know, American conservative family. Um, I was raised around firearms. I grew up around guns, never really bothered me, you know, definitely supportive of people's right to bear arms um, to kind of put that all together. So graduate high school, go to junior college. It's my last day. I'm in the library studying, doing my thing, getting ready for my very last final, very, very last final. So the shooting was around 12, 1230. My test was around 3, 3.30. I was going to finish my test and walk off campus and be done. So I'm sitting in the library studying with a few friends. And all of a sudden I heard one bang. And I kind of looked around. Someone dropped a textbook. Something else happened. And all of a sudden I heard repeated gunshots. And again, I know what repeated gunshot, gunshots sound like. So I immediately grabbed this girl that was sitting next to me literally threw her in this private study room and there was a bunch of kids cowering on the floor. I shut the door and I looked at everyone. I said, guys, everyone be quiet, shut up. Everyone call 911. We're going to be okay. And really where that calmness in that moment came from is that I was trained actually as an LA County lifeguard. And so you're trained to kind of handle those moments as um, non-emotionally as possible. And so 20, 30 minutes go by, um, a few more gunshots ring out and then a police officer with a key comes in, unlocks the door, pushes the door open. I'm the first one at the door and he points a gun straight in my face, probably four or five feet away from me. And he says, everyone put your hands up. We don't know who you are. And everyone's screaming, crying. And I just would hold his face. I said, officer, we're students, get us out of here. And so he said, everyone get on the floor and crawl out. So we left our belongings behind. And we crawled probably 100 feet to the stairwell, 
we ran out the front entrance of the library. All of the library doors were glass completely blown out. Mm. There were hundreds, like very literally hundreds of rounds spilled out in the foyer of the library. We run out on the steps, there's blood everywhere. And then we're running out to Pearl Street and we're almost to a safe spot where all of the media was at the time. And I heard an officer yell, don't look, don't look, don't look. Of course I looked. Mm. And there was the shooter's body um, deceased. Um, full tactical gear looked like um, a guy out of uh, you know a video game basically and um, of course everyone's wailing freaking out and I was just in the zone I was in fight or flight mode you know to get to a safe area and of course I see all of the media there and that was kind of the end of the actual event itself before I kind of put my reporter hat on to go out and, and tell my story. So, so tell me about that, your reporter hat, because you were a journalism student, right? Yes. Yeah. So I was in my second year of journalism and I knew at five years old, I was going to be a news anchor. Uh, it's the only thing I've ever wanted to do. Uh, it's a pretty cute story, but um, you know, I knew in that moment, once I had kind of caught my breath and taken a deep breath that I knew I had a story to tell and I had, I had an obligation to do that. And um, I had one reporter approach me, I think it was from ABC7 in LA, and she said, hey, do you want to do an interview? And I wasn't in that calm space yet. I said, you know, ma'am, I'm a journalism student. I get it. Let me take a breath for a second. And then after a minute or so, I'm like, you know what? It's time to do this. And so I approached that reporter again. I gave one interview, one turned to two, to five, to seven, to 10. And I forget the exact count, but I think in a two-hour span, I probably did 35 interviews approximately from networks all over the country and I was very literally getting pulled like by my arm okay you're done with this one go to this one go to this one go to this one because I was the only rational student that could get in front of a camera and explain Mm -hmm. what had just happened and um yeah it was pretty crazy to say the least so in this blog post that you wrote I believe it was five years after the shooting you had written a blog post about that day and in it you said that when that first reporter approached you, you weren't ready to talk. Can you expand on that? Like where your mind was? I know that you were thinking as a journalism student, I have a story to tell. I have an obligation to tell it. Um, But what did you mean by not being ready to talk in that moment? I mean, I was sprinting. So number one, I was just out of breath, but also I needed to take a minute to process what had just happened Mm. and get my facts straight and basically not overstate what had just happened. So one of the things that I received some flack for when the initial interviews came out, actually from my own family is, oh, you know, were there really hundreds of rounds of ammunition? Like, were you exaggerating because you were in the moment? And sure enough, the reports came out and there were hundreds of rounds. So I wasn't just imagining things, Mm -hmm. you know? So um, I just wanted to make sure I took a breath, caught my breath, made sure I thought through the story, what just happened. So that way I could give the best objectionable story of what um, had just occurred to make sure that this was told correctly. Why did you feel that it was your civic duty to share right away? I think, so number one, being a journalism student, um, you know, you have an obligation to tell stories, I believe. And then also, you know, not that in 2013, we were at the height of this hysteria of mass shootings in schools, but you know, obviously Columbine had happened in 1999. There were other ones leading up to the one that I was in. Mm -hmm. And I knew that there was a level of hysteria and I hate to say, but blowing things out of proportion in some, Mm -hmm. some cases I'll clarify. Mm -hmm. And so, and, and also, you know, being a, you know, putting my reporter hat away for a second, being someone that is, you know, pro second amendment and believes in the right to bear arms. I wanted to make sure that this story was told as closely to perfect as possible and to weigh in on that just for a second, you know, not to get too deep into politics, but it came out later in the reports that this gunman had documented severe mental health issues, went and applied for a gun license in California, which is notoriously one of the strictest um, states for gun laws and gun restrictions, and he was denied. And so he decided on his own accord to go ahead and manufacture and engineer a gun from scratch. Mm. And so that part of it too, again, coming from a political perspective, I don't mm-hmm. think is reported on enough. Of course, you know, with the recent ones, we've seen, oh, hey, he went and purchased the gun legally several hours before or a couple of days later. Mm-hmm. But then let's also tell the other side of it that not, that doesn't always happen. Some people will go to the ends of the earth to hurt other people. And mm-hmm. the example I give 
is the Boston bombings. There are pressure cookers. You can get them at your local retailer. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think, again, we need to tell all angles of why did this person do this? How did they acquire these things? Was it legally? Was it illegally? Um, and, and be fair to both sides, um, you know, of the argument. So, Brett, I wanted to get to this a little bit later, but because we're talking about it now, it might be better to to dive in. One of the things that I often hear from mass violence survivors in particular, and really a lot of trauma survivors talking about different stories in the media is that they're impacted by the media coverage of other similar events. So what you were just talking about in terms of the conversations around politics and everything, does that have an impact on you when these other mass violence events happen and you start hearing those conversations? Would you like these stories to be covered differently? Absolutely. I mean, I, it definitely weighs on me with the most recent one um, in Uvalde, Texas. You know, I was down for the count for a day or two. I was just in this lull of sadness, you know, for these poor families. Mm-hmm. And um, in terms of how we need to talk about it, actually, one more time, can you repeat the question so I make sure so I answer it? So just in terms of what the impact is of other ma- the co- media coverage of other mass violence incidents, and and do you think we need to be covering a journalist need to be covering these stories differently like is it does the impact the conversations the the politics the the gun stuff does that impact you negatively do you think that we should be talking about things differently or i mean we can open that question wide up in general what you think about the media coverage of these cases i think that there is again i can only relate to the incident that i was in i think that there's this mass land grab of who was there, who can we talk to, who can we get a hot quote from, and then everyone just kind of throws up their hands like, okay, thanks for the help, see you later, Mm. and there's never a follow-up. However, and I had sent you this over email, the Wall Street Journal article talking about um, mass shooter or mass violence survivors and how their lives are impacted five years later, 10 years later, 15 years later, and transparently, I had reached out to the producer of the Anderson Cooper show that I was on, um, you know, when my school shooting had happened and I've reached out to her, you know, on my own accord saying, Hey, like, how can I help? You know, I was on your show and I've never received a response. So it doesn't seem like there's really a care of how are these people doing? What's going on in their lives now? How have their opinions changed? Because, you know, being nine years removed now from, mm-hmm. you know, even coming from a household that is pro firearm um, possession, going through a mass shooting and then now being 28 years old, a full grown adult, you know, with a house and hoping to start a family, you know, my firearm thoughts and processes definitely have changed. Mm. Um, you know, so I, I just, I think there's a lack of follow-up. It's just in the moment, let's get this now, get it now, get it now. And then let's move on. That is such an interesting point. And I'm so happy you brought it up, Brett. I've heard that, that sentiment so many times in so many different ways, the feeling of journalists coming in and take, 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 taking, and then sort of just discarding the survivor and moving on to the next thing. And it seems that there's like a feeling of being forgotten, being abandoned, being used. Does that sound relatable to you? Like those- I would say somewhat, yes. Again, is it as, again, I'm putting my journalism hat on. Is it my responsibility as a journalist to keep tabs on former sources? And the answer is no, that's not, that's not my job. I'm not a therapist. I'm not a trained therapist. Um, you know, I got what I needed and it's time to move on to the next story. But when I take my journalist hat off and I put my human hat on, there should be some sort of follow-up, especially when in a moment of like true hurt and vulnerability, I gave you something that you needed, like scratch my back a little bit, like help Mm -hmm. me out, give me resources, follow up with me, see how I'm doing, Um, even from a a human element and then also a storytelling element. If this producer from CNN reached out to me and said, hey, you know, I got your message. I'd love to tell your story again and see where you're at. I would totally be Mm-hmm. you know, apt for that. So, um, so yeah, I think there's got to be a better way for these really tragic events to be covered. And not to say that my school shooting is equal to 9-11, but we've actively as journalists followed up with 9-11 victims and, and survivors um, and continue to tell those stories. Um, so I don't see, you know, why we couldn't do that for these, you know, very impactful events. That's such an interesting point. The fact that and I mean, this is something that the media tends to do, right? That 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 I, I've heard the term hierarchy so many times, like in this research project, that 
uh, a lot of people think that the public or the media creates like a hierarchy. They create a hierarchy of victims and survivors of one shooting, for example, or one mass violence incident, but then they also create a hierarchy of different events. So some survivors are left to feel like, well, our story isn't as important because only two people died in ours versus 20 people at this other one, you know? So it's really interesting to hear you say that. And in terms of the follow-up, like it's, it's really fascinating to have this conversation with you, a journalist, because I have been grappling with these things too. Like I think back on my career, I was a crime reporter for close to 15 years. I have no idea how many trauma survivors I interviewed, how many hundreds I would have interviewed in that span of time. And I never remember following up with somebody. Like first, I, I always kind of felt like I would be intruding if I were to call, but really the, my, my reasoning for calling would be to get something else, you know, like to do another story or to get another interview. There was never a moment there where I felt like, okay, I should call and see how they're doing after giving me that huge emotional thing. You don't want to double dip is essentially what you're saying. Mm -hmm. You don't. Yeah. But, but it shouldn't be like, I think that the reason that I felt so icky about that is because I knew I was continuing to take from them when really I'm, I'm realizing now that I should have just been following up as a human being to say, how are you doing after giving me that huge emotional part of you? And I just left you like, how are you doing now? Like I kind of left you in a, an awful state. And, and, and I think you bring up a good point. If we were to approach it from the human element of actually, hey, Joe, hey, Sally, how are you doing? And if, it, if that conversation loops into, I want to do something with this, then maybe something can be made out of that for, again, the greater good. Mm -hmm. um, and that's why with, with the event that I went through, and even with the personal beliefs that I still hold, I still think it's extremely important to tell this story, um, not only for you know, mass shooting um, survivors, but also you know, for people out there that are having difficulty with their, with their views. You know, I know several gun owners specifically that at this point are like, I, I think I'm ready to give these things up. It's just not mm -hmm. worth it anymore. It's not worth it on my conscience. And then also, the other way of, you know, I don't believe in guns at all, but it's getting so bad now that I have no choice but to defend myself. Mm. So there's, there's both conversations happening. And again, for me as a, as a reporter, and also as someone with my own personal set of beliefs, um, it's a very difficult position to be mm. in, especially with the circumstance of someone creating a weapon from scratch. Mm -hmm. You know, how do you, how do you regulate that? And the answer is you don't. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, it, it's a difficult position to be in, but I just, I want there to be a rational, non-politically charged space and arena for people to go out there and, and talk about this crappy situation that they've been in and just talk about their emotions without saying, oh, if we had more gun regulation, that would have never happened. Like that, it gets to this politically charged motion that people just throw their hands up and say, you know what, we're just gonna have to agree to disagree and walk away. Do you, so do you, do you think that journalists, like in the immediate aftermath of these traumatic events, they are seeking out people to say either this shows that we need to get rid of guns or this shows that we don't need to, like they're trying to put people into boxes when that might not be the conversations that people are wanting to have? Here's an interesting thought, and I, this is coming to fruition now. What if I would have gotten in front of those cameras and said, you know what, if I had a firearm on me legally that day with a concealed carry license, I would have tried to defend myself. How would have that gone? That's an interesting question. And I, I'm not aiming it one way mm. or the other, but is that the conversation that people are willing to have? Mm. I don't know. So, so yeah, the, the conversations, you know, with these poor parents, I, I, I pray for them every single day in Texas, you know, I'm sure the first thing going through your head is why does this 18 year old kid have a gun? We need to outlaw these things. I get it. I totally get it. Um, but then once the dust settles and then we have to, again, look at our rights as Americans and also reflect within ourselves, you know, where do those conversations go? I don't know. Mm. It, it's difficult. It really, really is difficult. I don't have the answer um, as someone that still stands as, you know, um, pro firearm um, purchasing and, and concealed carry and all of that. But, you know, I've had my own second thoughts about it. You know, mm. I, should, uh, you know, and to go down the road of politics, should an 18 year old kid be the right, you know, have the right to own an AR-15? I don't know. I really mm. don't know. So. Brett, are you, are you comfortable um, going a little bit more into the day that your shooting happened? I, I, sure. I want to ask you about, tell me, tell me if I'm going anywhere that makes you uncomfortable, but you, sure. you just told us uh, a few moments ago that you, you could have given like 35 or so interviews in a, 
two hour time span. Can you tell me uh, if you recall what happened after that? Because you, you described in your blog post, walking home, leaving this crime scene where your car was parked within this crime scene, you couldn't get your car and you were walking home and people were honking and waving at you, presumably, presumably having just seen you on TV. What was that like? Because you also, you described this like 15 minutes of fame, quote unquote, like, what was that like having just experienced this hugely traumatic event and then having people like recognize you on the street because of it, like right, right after? I, truthfully, I hated it um, because it was such a, a tragic, horrific, traumatic event. It wasn't something happy. If I won, you know, an Olympic medal and people were recognizing me and because I, I was on TV, great. I would have loved that. But I was walking home, all of my stuff, was on campus because it was an active crime scene and I'm walking home I literally just have my cell phone on me this little 19 year old kid mm -hmm. and I'm processing everything I have work in a couple of days I have to call my boss I have to call these people like so much was running through my head that like it just made me sad I literally walked home with like my head between my shoulders it was mm -hmm. just a very sad walk home it was about two and a half miles definitely gave me some time to to breathe um through everything but um, once I got home, um, I just broke down. Like I just had an absolute meltdown. Um, cause then I was able to be by myself and really understand what I just went through. And yeah, it, it for the next couple of days I got recognized, like if I was going to the grocery store, um, you know, a few people, you know, waved or like pointed, but, um, you know, I didn't want to be recognized as, oh, you're the kid from the Santa Monica college shooting. Like, you know, with, you know, most notably the Parkland shooting, a few of those kids that were very, you know, into the politics of this afterwards, they're extremely recognizable. I mean, they have millions of followers on social mm -hmm. media now, and that's what they're known for. And is that a good thing for me? Absolutely not. I don't want people to recognize me on the street. Oh, you're the kid from the Santa Monica college shooting. I don't want that. Mm -hmm. I want to be known hopefully in 30 years. Oh, you're the guy on ABC news as the nightly news anchor, you know, mm -hmm. something possible. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I'm glad I, told my story. I'm glad I got up in front of those cameras. Um, but when I say 15 minutes of fame, it was more 15 minutes of infamy. I didn't, mm. I didn't enjoy it, but I had to do it. Just something mm. inside of me said, you got to do this. Would, would, is there anything that would have made it easier for you? Like, especially when we're talking about the immediate aftermath, when you come out, there's all those reporters, like you describing how you're being pulled side to side, like, okay, now we need you here. Now we need you here. Like, like that is just, I, I've seen that happen. I've seen it happen. So I understand it as a journalist and it's awful, but it just feels so wrong because we're not talking about somebody who's running for political office. Okay, now we need to give you an interview here. You need to give an interview here. We're talking about somebody who just experienced a trauma. Like, have you thought about whether there's, there might've been a better way or in an ideal world, you know, we can be as fantastical as we want here like what would have made your life easier for somebody who felt the duty to 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 share your story but to not have further trauma added on top of it one of the things that the last couple of months I've been thinking about is in a perfect world why don't we have deployment teams if you will from the university or from these schools I hate that it's sad that we have to get to this point of immediate resources that are available right then and there and this is something that's actually deeply bothered me. Not one time has my university reached out to me and been like, hey, Brett, you're a valued alum. We know what you went through. What's going on? How can we tell your story? How can we support you? Not one time have they reached out to me. I had my professor that day from the final I was going to take. He reached out to me. I had lunch with him actually the very next day after the shooting, which was wow. very nice. But no note from the president, the dean, nothing. Like, wow. And that, I think more so than the media, I think that is an obligation and a duty and a moral obligation on the universities to actually reach out to these, you know, mm -hmm. people that go through these shootings um, when it's associated with, you know, a certain building or group or university, college, school, to check up on these people. Mm -hmm. What, you know, what sort of a, resources allocated towards that? Yeah. Well, so what sort of immediate resources do you think would have been helpful to you? Like if somebody, if you were like, you were at the school for like two hours after it happened, right. Doing these interviews, yeah. if somebody were to sweep in and say, Brett, we're here to give you what you need. Like, what would, what would that have looked like? Do you think? I think 
and this could be kind of almost like a PR move almost in a way, um, in a positive manner, if they were to gather us students up that just saw these horrific things and just like almost like corral us almost in a way and talk to us about, hey, this is what we know. What did you guys see so we can get all of our facts straight and like and grieve what just happened. Mm. Uh, so that way, you know, maybe someone saw something else and get all of these facts straight so that way we could possibly even work with law enforcement and mm. the and the right jurisdictions, the right groups of people to actually come to a consensus on what just happened, how do we move forward from this mm. as a group, um, mm. instead of all of us just being individualized and we all have to kind of just scatter about. Um, fend I, I for yourselves. That, yeah, and fend for yourselves. Now, again, with, again, this horrible event in Texas with these elementary school students, again, very different. They're minors, they're little. Um, arguably, they probably need more resources than adults because they can't really rationalize what just happened but there's got to be a way to allocate resources, whether it's the counties, the cities, the school districts, the states, the fed. I mean, there's got to be a way to gather people up after these horrific events and say, what just happened? What does everyone know? What did you see? Here are the resources available to you and we're here to support you. I think that type of, that type of community gathering is, would be so helpful for the healing of these universities, these towns that go through mm -hmm. uh, these horrific events, mm -hmm. um, you know, very similar to a church, you know, there was a church shooting um, in Iowa a couple of days ago and the church immediately said, we've got services available. We've got counselors. Let us know how can we, we can help. If we could get that to a grander scale for mm -hmm. students and for people that go through these things, I think we'd be in a much better place. Make it the expectation rather than the exception have these Absolutely. things like, in place. You know, if let's say town A had a policy and everyone knew it, if something big happens, everyone that night or the following day meets at town hall at nine o'clock in the morning and let's all figure this out. I think it'd be great. Mm -hmm. and everyone could show up with, whether it's food, whether it's, you know, mental health services, whether it's the FBI in case they need to get additional information, there could be so much good that comes out of a bad situation if we all just come together um, and help each other grieve and, and move past these things and, mm. and gather our resources rather than immediately point fingers and say, this wasn't for you guys. Like it wasn't for Republicans or Democrats. And that's unfortunately um, exactly where we're at. Mm, so political. Um, you, you also described Brett in your blog, you went home after that two and a half mile walk and you did another interview when you got home, you broke down, you went to bed. And then you got a call at, was it four in the morning? 4 a.m. Who was it that was calling you at 4 a.m.? It was the affiliate. It was this, I think it was a local affiliate in Atlanta. And what's really interesting is that they had told me, we're going to call you. They told me the day that it happened, we're going to call you tomorrow morning at 4 a.m. I knew that it was coming, but I forgot to set my alarm and I woke up at 3.57. It's like my internal body clock knew. I literally woke up and they were ringing and I stepped outside and took the call for 15, I think it was 10, 15 minutes. And you know, that was it, which now looking back on it is extremely rude. Like yeah. you, you, Hey, when works best for you? We know you just went through everything. Like we'd love to interview you. How to like, what time is reasonable for you after you went through this? Oh, 8 30 in the morning works for me. I usually get up at eight. Perfect. We'll call you then. Not, and Hey, it, we're going to call you at 4am. I probably should have just ignored them. This, and this was a this was a news outlet that had already interviewed you. Yes. So could they not have just used that interview that they already did? Like that, that's one of the things that I think the news media needs to wrap their heads around is you don't need to keep taking and taking and taking. Like if you've already taken, then just use that. Like how, when we're thinking about how we can minimize harm, that seems like a classic example of, we don't need to do this interview with this guy at four o'clock in the morning tomorrow, because he's actually already just talked to us. And in that, you know, in that corral group that I was kind of describing, you know, to kind of make a sports metaphor after a game, you line up the key players, you know, and you ask them questions about the game, you know, who scored the more, most points, what have you, you interview the coach, you know, in that group of immediate healing and gathering resources, you know, there could be, you know, some sort of supervisor or aide or manager or someone of authority from the school to say, Hey, you know, the media wants to talk to a few people, like who is in that place to do that? Mm. Essentially put them in one spot. The media can ask their questions and then you move on. 
Mm. instead of getting pulled. And like, I mean, I retold my story 30 plus times. And by the end of the day, my voice was raspy, (laughs) you know? So there's, there's gotta be a better way to hash out these extremely important details that have to be told one way or another in a less harmful manner and less like piranhas. Mm, like piranhas, that's kind of yeah. what it felt like it's just like they're just nipping at you and grabbing any piece of meat possible and I, again I volunteered to do that so that's what I threw myself into mm-hmm. but there's you know in journalism school they teach us ethics there's got to be a more ethically sound way to do these things mm-hmm. um, that is centered around the community or the city um, that is more organized rather than mm-hmm. just this manic free-for-all because because you keep saying that you volunteered you know you consented to these but you were still in, like, you were in a traumatic state. You had just experienced this traumatic event. So I don't think that we can put it all on the survivor to say, okay, yeah, I'm good to go. And then just keep taking, taking, taking. Like, I think I'm sensing from you that you agree that there should be a responsibility on the part of the journalist to know when to stop pushing or to do it in a better way. Absolutely. And, you know, you and I were, you know, discussing over email, um, you know, it, it's really stuck in my head that Anderson Cooper was in Uvalde, Texas, um, you know, last week or two weeks ago. And the way that he was so comforting to that dad that found out that his daughter had passed away, like was very touching, you know, um, you know, the fact that he had his hand on his shoulder and, you know, he was asking him questions as a journalist should, but he was acting like a decent human being at the same time and not so black and white. And, you know, I'm the reporter, I'm just doing my job and I'm gonna get out of here. Um, and I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. Um, I guess, you know, it comes to every individual how much they want to emotionally connect with the person that they're interviewing. But I think, again, going back to ethics, that journalists, when these mass casualties happen that everyone can relate to, has an obligation to connect on some level um, and make that person feel better. Um, not be their therapist because again journalists are not trying to be therapists but there's got to be a way you know because again if if the shoe was on the other foot after an interview I would I would give I would have given Brett a huge hug and be like dude I'm sorry mm-hmm. like this really sucks and do that would have been really nice to have do you do you remember feeling any empathy in in those no. moments during all those interviews zero mm-hmm. zero there was no empathy it was we need to get the story and do it now and I remember the journalists kind of started leaving the scene and I was just kind of just like left in the dust. Like, okay, what do I do now? You know, again, my car's on campus, my laptop, my keys, like all I had was luckily I grabbed my cell phone. Mm-hmm. And to, and to add on to that, not only was, you know, these journalists pulling me back and forth. I mean, literally like the seconds between interviews, I was getting phone calls from radio stations. I was getting phone calls from family members. My social mm-hmm. media was blowing up. I mm-hmm. mean, I was the most popular person on the planet for a good five, 10 minutes. Mm. That's what it felt like. Did you enjoy it in the moment? Like, I don't know if enjoy is the right word, but like, what was it like in the moment? Cause I, you've, you've described pretty well how you felt after it all ended, but what was it like in that moment? I, I felt proud of myself for stepping up the way that I did and telling the story as well as I, you know, as I did, I definitely stuttered in a few interviews and um, wasn't, you know, my picture perfect camera ready self. Um, very obviously so given the situation, but um, I was very proud of myself and I still am. Um, You know, the fact that I, you know, had to fear for my life within the own four walls of my school and then have a police officer point, literally I was staring down the chamber of his gun, you know, for someone to shake that off and get in front of, you know, millions of people on live television. I mean, that's pretty admirable, I'd say. Mm -hmm. And, and that's why I admire, you know, so many of these people that step up after these you know, horrific events and actually get out there and talk about it. It's extremely hard. I've had years of survivor's guilt. Um, you know, I've heard stories of people having survivor's guilt and end up committing suicide. Like, mm-hmm. I get it. I'm not at that point, but I get it. It, mm-hmm. you know, why was the lady that was just picking cans up off campus to make an extra couple bucks? Why was she killed? Mm-hmm. Like she wasn't doing it. So, um, yeah, it's, it's been an interesting journey, nine years to the day. Um, but I'm really glad that, you know, that we connected and I'm glad that I get to tell this story because, you know, there isn't enough empathy in media. It's how can we connect this to politics? How can we make this as big as possible and, and radicalize it, if you will, to ensure we get more, you know, viewers or page views. I mean, CNN just, um, is laying back on their breaking news banner. 
good. We shouldn't over-sensationalize. What happened in Texas, 100% that's breaking news. But some of these other events, you know, I don't think everything's breaking news. Or as things develop and breaking news and breaking news. And and I think that has an impact on not only survivors, but like the general public. It gets our amygdala firing. Like we, we all kind of, I mean, research has shown that the general public that consumes the media coverage, especially these mass violence incidents, that they are even at an increased risk of experiencing PTSD just from the repeated exposure to these events. I want to touch on something that you just mentioned, Brett, because the people watching or listening wouldn't have realized this, even though we talked about it offline, but today is the nine-year anniversary. And I, I, when I realized that you brought it to my attention the other day, I said, like, absolutely, we can do this another day. And you said, you're okay to do it today, but can you, can you give us a little bit of insight if you're comfortable doing so on, I guess, the experience of a mass violence survivor all these years later, what is today like for you? Like, what is what are you feeling today that you might not necessarily be feeling on other days? Because this is also a day that journalists would be reaching out to people. You know, it's the anniversary. We got to get that interview. Like, what is it like for you today? I think for me today, and again, being in the wake of these recent events in the United States and President Biden coming up and, and making a you know very politically charged statement of we need to we need to come to a consensus and solve this, which I totally agree with. And I think his speech was great. It's when those headlines come up, it's definitely a constant reminder, um, but I don't think about it on a daily basis by any means. However, um, I went to my girlfriend's niece's dance recital um, a couple nights ago. Room probably had 2,000 people in it. It was extremely dark. I knew exactly where their emergency exits were. Um, I was far, farthest away from them. Definitely had a little bit of anxiety and worry. Definitely would have, personally would have made me feel better if I had a concealed carry. In that moment, I thought I wish I had a gun just in case. And so, yeah, it's, you know, certain events definitely make me a little bit edgy, um, you know, mass gatherings, but then I'll go to a college football game and I'm so into the game that I just don't even think about it. Mm. So it, it's very situational. Um, but the, I think the lasting wound is continuing to see this happen over and over again. Mm. And my own political beliefs constantly get you know, uh, battled against and not that I live by my political beliefs, but for me to sit here and say that, you know, I'm pro firearm, but then look what's happening in this country. You know, is this the way that we need to be living? You know, and then I go back to it and look at my own lens. That guy created it from scratch. Hmm. As a country cannot fix that. The only thing we can fix is defending ourselves. And then it gets into this whole tailspin and um, it's exhausting. You know, the, like how to fix this is, I just, I don't know how we're going to do it. But, you know, my girlfriend working in a hospital and there was that recent hospital shooting mm. um, over, um, you know, a patient being angry at his doctor. She says, even aside from dating me, that that exact situation has been a massive fear of hers. Mm. You know, patients being angry that they didn't get the right care and they come in and just decide to kill someone. Mm. So, um it's, you know, there's constant reminders, but it's not something I think about on a daily basis, but you know, would I take it back? Honestly, no, I don't think I would because I think a lot of personal development has come from it. And I think a lot of critical thinking has come from it. And I now know confidently that if a bad situation happens and I find myself in it, that I can get myself out. Hmm. Wow. That's, that's a really powerful thought to think of. I, I love hearing that you, you had ended your, that blog post that I was referring to, you had ended it with the line. Let's just remember what people are going through when these tragedies happen. What is it, Brett, that you want journalists, survivor support workers, the, the general public to know about the experience of being a mass violence survivor? Oh, you got, <clears throat> excuse me. You got me a little teary. I'm um, hearing that. Um, I think we all just need to remember that this isn't all politics. It's just not. It's just not because as long as human beings have been alive, we've been killing each other. Out of anger, out of accident, people will continue to die in not so great circumstances. And there's just so much damage that is done from these events that isn't just, oh my gosh, 
my cousin, my sister, my best friend died in a mass shooting, we're going to bury them. And I guess it's time to move on. And that, that's just not reality. This stuff goes on for years and years and years and years afterward. And we all need to be more empathetic, absolutely, to the people that go through this stuff and also people that have differing opinions. Mm -hmm. um, I've had several people say, how could you, you know, still be, you know, have this certain belief system when you've had a gun pointed in your face? And I'm just like, how in the hell is that empathetic? That's not like you have, you have no idea what I went through. You never cared to ask. You just want to hear what my political belief is on how we're going to fix it. But before we fix it, let's address the problem. Mm -hmm. How are you doing? What's going on? Have you sought therapy? You know, are you still experiencing signs of post-traumatic stress disorder? Are you scared to go out in public? Are you scared to be in large gatherings? Someone could ask me that all day long. I'm less hesitant to have the political conversation because it go unfortunately goes nowhere. Mm -hmm. I still stand firmly that people should have the right to defend themselves. Mm -hmm. Other people don't, and that's okay. Everyone has their own belief systems, but um, we all just need to take a massive step back and be way more empathetic as a world. That's really the solution. Did did journalists ask you about the gun stuff the day of? Do you do you no. recall? I don't think at that point that gun ownership was as polarizing as right. it is now. Um, Truthfully, I think Parkland did a lot of it. Mm -hmm. um, and as you know, more of these happen, I think um, Sandy Hook, the elementary school, I, I mean, again, not to say that it matters more when little kids get hurt, but of course that's more grabby and more emotional mm -hmm. when little kids are you know, getting hurt. So I think when these events happen, people want to immediately draw conclusions of you know, why did this happen? But when you're at a college, it's all adults. Mm -hmm. So it's not as like, oh my mm -hmm. gosh. So. Do you, one, one other question I meant to ask you was, um, because I, I often talk to people about the impact that trauma has on the brain and sometimes it can impact the way people re recall incidents, traumatic incidents. Do you remember like, or has, have, has your recollection of events changed at all over the years versus what you were saying in those interviews in the immediate aftermath? It's really funny. Um, generally speaking, and for no good reason, I actually have a very terrible memory. Uh, hmm. I don't remember very well maybe I'm a little lazy I don't know but uh, that day has stuck with me like I could I could replay it in my head as if it happened yesterday um mm. you know with the type of therapy that I've done it's called EMDR I'm sure mm -hmm. you're familiar yeah yeah I've done it yep what I do is essentially I hold these two vibrating paddles in my hand and they buzz back and forth and with I've gone to therapists that I've worked with um, guys in the military and they just tell, they tell me to play every single second in my head. And I would just sit there and sob and sob and mm. sob. And I basically just was like a wet towel and I just wringed myself out. But um, no, I remember it truthfully like it was yesterday. And uh, yeah, it's, you know, it, it's a haunting memory for sure. Um, it, and ironically, it's not as haunting if I go moment by moment. When the police officer pointed the gun at me, it was more haunting of not knowing what was going to happen when I immediately threw, you know, this, this gal Audra, um, in the study room and I jumped in there. I remember just texting my grandfather saying, Hey, turn on the news. There's a mass shooter at my school and immediately started calling 911. And just that 15 minutes that felt like five hours mm -hmm. of just sitting there waiting, waiting, what's going on, what's going on. Um, and then immediately as the police officer ironically pointed the gun at me, I'm like, okay, we're good. Mm. Ironically. Hmm. Maybe because it was a police officer who knows. And yeah. I, I wonder too, if like your, your very clear memory of events, if that has anything to do with the fact that you told your story so many times over and over again in the immediate aftermath, I have no idea. Maybe somebody watching this or listening to this will be saying no, 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 or maybe, yeah, I have no yeah. idea, but I wonder. Yeah. You know, I've, I've told the story obviously a decent amount of times and I've written about it. And, um, you know, it comes up in, in conversation here and there. Um, I just think it's one of those moments that like is so impactful that it's like, it's hard to forget. Mm. Um, but ironically, as I'm thinking about it in my head now, I remember that more than I remember my college graduation mm. and college graduation, fun, happy, lively, mm. celebration, positive vibes. And I don't even remember that as well as, you know, as that shooting. So mm -hmm. You know, it's unfortunate, but um, you know, I'm a better man because of it, and I'm a better journalist because of it. I mm -hmm. really believe so. 
Tell me, tell me that, tell me a little bit more about that. How does it make you a better journalist? Do you think? So now, I mean, in my day-to-day work right now, I, I talk to people about money. I, I want to understand money stories. I understand, I want to understand where people are coming from. And this is a, a perfect example. So growing up, I always had a bank account. It was, mm-hmm. it wasn't even like a thought, like everyone just gets a bank account. I thought that was, that was mm-hmm. my level of privilege. Everyone has a bank account, but come to find out that's not the case. And I had to swallow a huge pill of humility and, and mm-hmm. realize like not everyone comes from an upper middle-class white family that had a vacation house and boats and jet skis. Mm-hmm. Not everyone has that. And not everyone has that same starting point that I did. Mm-hmm. And so with financial reporting, while it may not be traumatic, like a mass shooting, but you know, there are financial traumas too. Like, you know, I mean, recently, and I don't think I disclosed this to you, I went through a divorce last year mm-hmm. and that is immensely traumatic on like emotionally traumatic, financially traumatic, mm-hmm. spiritually traumatic, literally physically traumatic too. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's more levels to trauma than someone pointing a gun in your face or fearing mm-hmm. for your life. And, and that's a huge thing that I've learned, you know, in the last 18 months. Mm-hmm. It's really taught you a lot of empathy by the sounds of it in in all different parts of life. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, specifically to what I'm working on now, realizing that not everyone has that same level of opportunity, not realizing that, you know, not everyone starts with, you know, a credit card in their hand, like I did at 18 years old. And some people have more barriers to jump through, um, has definitely been part of my reporting. And I try to always remind myself that, you know, when I'm talking about investing for the future or saving for retirement, some people can't even afford to put gas in their tank. Mm. Like we need to take a huge step back and, you know, how do you just get by day to day? Cause unfortunately mm-hmm. that's where we're at financially as a country and people can't get by. Mm-hmm. And that's a level of trauma and that will go on for generations. And it's been proven. And you think that your own traumatic events sort of open, helped open your eyes or helped take this more empathetic approach to these sorts of stories? Absolutely. Because, you know, not to knock my parents by any means, but I don't believe I grew up in a very empathetic home. And so I've had to teach myself empathy, Mm -hmm. Um, especially being a journalist, you know, we're grown to understand people's stories and where they're coming from and what is the grander perspective of things. And, you know, when you're a 19 year old kid and, you know, you've got a, you know, two parent household, all of these privileges, you don't really care to know or realize what's going on around you. And now into my twenties, having traveled the world, reported on a ton of different stories, reporting on a mass shooting of my own, you know, it really opens up your eyes to the type of crap that people are dealing with. You, and you that, reported on another mass shooting? You like, I, no, I want the to, one that I would, right, that right, I would right. But also as a reporter reading about all of these different mm. mass shootings and, you know, I mean, correlating to mass shootings, not everyone believes that owning a gun is a good thing. And mm-hmm. not everyone believes that we have a right to bear arms and that's okay. There's mm-hmm. nothing wrong with that. Everyone has their reasons as to why. And some of them are probably pretty legitimate. Mm-hmm. So um, it just, it makes, I think us as reporters, we, our job is to swallow a big pill of humility and realize that, you know, if you come from even a slight level of privilege, that there's a lot of people out there that don't. Mm-hmm. All right. Brett, is there anything that you wanted to talk about that we haven't touched on yet? Um, you rang me out like a, like a wet rag for sure. Oh no, I don't like to hear that. No, in a good way. In a good way. I want, I want you, I want to leave you feeling good about this conversation, you know, like, no, this is all good. It's, it's getting it out there. And that's my larger point is that mm. we need to figure out how to be open-minded and have open conversations without it always leading to politics, mm-hmm. whether it's the abortion stuff that's going on in the United States, gun control, taxes, all of this stuff. We just need to be more open, not point the fingers, point blame, and not live in this tribalist society where, oh, I'm Republican, you're Democrat, we're not friends. Mm. That doesn't get us anywhere. Let's open up with our stories, have a conversation. But at the end of the day, that's too much work. Mm. Really easy to point fingers and talk trash on Twitter. But it's, it's really hard to sit down, have a cup of coffee with someone and say, you've got a differing opinion. I want to hear it. And why? How, how big of a role do you think the media plays in that divisiveness? Big part. I, and again, very transparently, even though I am uh, a, um, a reporter, you know, again, like we were talking about offline, you can look up someone's uh, voting party. I am, I'm a registered Republican. But when I sit here and watch Fox News, I want to throw up. 
It's crap. It, it doesn't actually serve any real purpose. And it's the same thing with, you know, some of the other mainstream medias out there. I mean, it's just not the news anymore. It is an elevated talk show on whatever political spectrum you want to be on. And, you know, the namesake of my school, the Walter Cronkite School, he stood for objective journalism. I'm going to give you the straight up information and you can do with it what you will. And we have completely lost that as reporters and as media. We have completely lost that narrative because we're motivated by money, we're motivated by business objectives, and, and it's really upsetting, um, truthfully. And I've had to look myself in the mirror and say, you know, what am I doing? Um, as a reporter several times, like, are we actually, are we actually informing the public of what is happening in their communities and in their country, or are we spitting opinions about why the president is terrible, why the Speaker of the House is terrible, why these laws won't work? And it's just not getting us anywhere. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I think I would be a fool, and anyone would be a fool in the United States to say here and say that the media isn't divisive, mm -hmm. even yeah. as part of that media. And being in a field that, again, let's call it for what it is, that is largely left leaning, most. And, you know, most people in the media are left-leaning. And for someone that does identify as a conservative, like, it is a very hard place to play in. It is mm -hmm. a very hard place. Um, but again, as a Republican, I'm more than happy to have those conversations and understand where other people come from. Um, and that's just not, unfortunately, where we're at these days. Mm. And it's interesting. It's interesting to think about, like, the at what cost on the bigger scale in terms of what things are not getting done because we can't just have conversations and at the smaller scale, like at what expense when you're, when you're taking people and jostling them around and because you're just trying to get those clicks and the everything, it's, it's a lot of food for thought. So I thank you for that, Brett. Anything else you would like to add? Everyone just needs to be nicer to each other. That's it. We all need to really just suck it up and be nice and smile at people and say, have a good day. And go watch a water polo game. Maybe. Yep, exactly. We all just need to just get in the pool and just beat the crap out of each other. Maybe then we'd feel better. Yeah. Yeah. I guess the water pool is not the best example. Yeah, exactly. Anybody listening, anybody watching who has not seen a water polo game, I think that they even say that it is it is more hardcore than rugby, if I remember. It is. Or it's so one of the top I, three, is, right? This is a whole nother podcast. I'm a firm believer. Please slide into my DMs if you feel differently. Water polo is the second hardest sport in the world next to boxing, MMA, where it's like direct impact fighting. Yeah. Um, for anyone that doesn't uh, know about water polo, basically people are intentionally trying to drown you <laughs> and beat you up in the process and you can't touch the bottom of the pool. So and it all a, goes on under the surface. Yeah, exactly. you can't exactly. see my, my son actually, who is seven at the time of this recording, he was recently asking me about water polo. He's like, but you can touch the ground, right? Like, no, it's like, then what do you do? I'm like, you're treading water and you're swimming back and forth and you're, and he was like, wow. I'm like, yeah, wow. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And a lot of people don't know it's one of the oldest Olympic sports and it's, it's a great sport for anyone out there um, in the United States. It's a growing sport. I'm a big proponent of, you know, youth water polo. Um, our U.S. our men's team hasn't been up to speed. Our women's team is fantastic. I mean, they crush it. They are such a great um, squad to watch, but um, yeah, let's leave this on a positive note. Everyone should go watch the water polo. <laughs> yeah. I love that. Thank you so much, Brett. Sure.